Perhaps we'll begin. I feel like saying after this morning, um, welcome to the son of Vedana. <laughs> you had the, the trailer, as I said this morning, you get the, the full feature this evening. Vedana, what we've been doing today, what we've been looking at, I don't know if it ever perplexes you why we concentrate so heavily on this. I think Chris gave you some good suggestions this morning. Why Veda figures so largely, yet when we come to look at the actual Satipatthana text, which I referred to right at the beginning of the retreat, when we come to look at that text, it's actually a really, really short section. Very, very short. It has huge implications that run all through our lives, let alone the theoretical aspects of Buddhist psychology. It has enormous ramifications um, for what we're doing. Vedana, let me get the uh, what might appear to you to be the boring stuff out of the way. Let me give you definition of what the term Vedana means. You've heard the translation. The translation generally for this is feelings, which is a little misleading because um, in English it's rather ambiguous when we use the word feelings. Uh, and particularly these days it's more noticeably connected with emotion, um, with the emotional side of our lives. And that's not actually what's being implied by the term Vedana at all. We're not indicating feelings in the emotional sense. You know, say, don't get emotional on me tonight. This is not about emotions. Although, I might add, that emotions can be built on this. And hopefully we'll touch on a little of this this evening. So the word probably is better translated, I suppose, in a least forbidding, forbidding sense by the phrase I think Chris used this morning, feeling tone. Yeah. The tonality of our experience. It has a lot in common also, one, one last translation of this, um, with what in Greek would be termed hedone, which is actually the feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness particularly. So it's actually the hedonic tone of experience. Yeah. Everybody with me so far? So we've got the hedonic tone of experience, the feeling tone of experience. It's a Vedana. Yeah. It's one of those words, actually, in mindfulness circles, I think almost ought to be naturalised, because there's no, there's no translation that sits really comfortably with this particular term. Etymologically, it's derived out of the term Veda, in Pali and Sanskrit. Um, if any of you are familiar, which some of you probably are, with ancient Indian literature, there is a whole class of texts called the Vedas. It's the same origin. You know, it's the same term. The term Veda means to know something. <coughs> so the Vedas literally are the profound knowing of the universe and everything that's contained in it. It's a kind of big claim. So it actually means to know. In Hindu mythology, and I find this really interesting, out of the coming together, the marriage, it says, of Maya, a word you might know, 
which means illusion, and Vedana is born Dukkha. Yeah? This is not even Buddhist, this is, this is Hindu. So Dukkha arises out of the coming together of illusion and Vedana. And I think we see echoes of this coming through even in Buddhist psychological attitudes and Buddhist psychological texts. Now the term Vedana occurs again and again in early Buddhist material and psychological texts. Yeah. I think Chris mentioned this morning I've just been having an overdose of Vedana this year by editing this complete collection of papers, including writing a huge paper myself on it. So hence the reason why you're getting this this evening. <laughs> Spread the dukkha around is my, <laughs> is my motto. <laughs> so why, why is Vedana important in this? Because it's occurring in many, many different maps of psychological functioning. In, in Buddhism. It's not restricted to one place in all the ways that the Buddha speaks of it. Yeah. Coming back and just echoing perhaps in slightly different ways what Chris was saying this morning when he introduced this whole practice, which is, it is a practice, it's not a theory, is that our Vedanas, our feeling tones come basically in three forms. For all intents and purposes, mostly, it's usually in two. It's pleasant and it's unpleasant. And it's neither. Remember that from this morning when Chris went through this? It's pleasant, it's unpleasant and neither. I could actually go now. That's it. Yeah. Doesn't seem vastly complicated, does it? Pleasant, unpleasant and neither. But um, we might say that Vedan is a slippery little critters. They're getting away from us all the time. You know, they're very fast, they're very motile, and they're very difficult to catch. Yeah, and I don't mean this in going Vedana hunting. In our experience, they're happening all the time. Yeah? So feelings of pleasantness, that feeling tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neither. Let's bracket that out for a second. It's neither. In a way, it's not even neutrality. It's, it's, a, it's an indifference. It's that which I'm not interested in. That which I'm completely indifferent to. This escapes our notice. So what really figures large on our horizons are the pleasant and the unpleasant in terms of the way that we taste our encounter with experience. Yeah? There's this wonderful term in Sanskrit, um, and it's there sometimes in Pali as well, this ancient Indian language which is used to recall the early Buddhist text. And the term is rasa. The term rasa actually means the taste of experience. Yeah, it's used in all sorts of things, from aesthetics to dance to music uh, to cookery. Literally, it's the taste of something. Whether the taste of your experience, I'm going to use it in a sort of more, more culinary way here, is sweet or sour. Yeah? How is your experience today? Is it sweet or sour? Well, actually, if we're honest about it, it's, it's varied, isn't it? It's gone through fluctuations. Yeah? Sweetness and sourness, pleasantness and unpleasantness, arising constantly and falling away constantly. Yeah. 
And the important thing about this, and the reason why I'm, in a sense, talking to you this evening for a whole Dharma talk, is that this is going to govern your behaviour. Yeah? Our behaviour is actually being, in a sense, driven by our encounter with experience in terms of that simple, basic pleasantness and unpleasantness arising constantly. Yeah? This has enormous ramifications. I don't know if you're aware of this, and I'm going to point, point this out right at the beginning. This has enormous ramifications in your life because of a lifetime spent merely reacting to Vedanas as they arise in your experience, as we taste experience in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment activities, is going to form your character. Can you see that? So when we don't examine Vedana, when we don't come close to it, when we don't begin to perceive it, when it's what Plato calls the unexamined life, then... Actually, it's forming your character. It's determining what you do. It's forming your patterns. Remember, we started off, and I think it was with Christina, you know, breathing in, breathing out, relaxing, and calming the formations. Yeah. Technical term means absolutely nothing. Calming your habit patterns, your patterns of agitation. Agitation is very much written into the ways that we react to the Vedanas of pleasantness and unpleasantness as they arise, moment by moment. Right at this moment, you're all having Vedanas. You could do a little experiment and just sit and really sense where the pleasantness and the unpleasantness and experience lies at this moment. In the coolness of the air, the warmth, the uncomfortableness of the seat, the nagging, gnawing, unpleasantness in your knee, whatever it may be, you may become aware of this. This is Vedana. Now we know, just on a very simple sense, if there is unpleasantness arising in the body, the body will shift its posture. We will move. What happens if there's unpleasantness encountered in the mind? We move away from. So, if it's pleasant... Again, Chris touched on this this morning. We're moving towards something. So think about this in terms of life. In a way, what we're doing is constantly moving in and moving out and moving in and moving out. That is life. As a poet, really, I think, well puts this. He says, speak softly, for this is your life. Life and my consciousness of it. Pain follows pain, pleasure follows pain, pain follows pleasure. Today we drink wine in celebration, tomorrow we drink it because we grieve. But nothing from either wine will remain. That's the coming and going of Vedana. Pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain. The words that are used in the original language in Pali um, and the Sanskritic forms Make this really clear because the word for you know the unpleasant is dukkha. The word I'm sure most of you are at least familiar with this sense of dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. 
action, sometimes just referring to pain. You know? And its opposite, sukha, the feeling of pleasantness, blissfulness, happiness. All these are described as sukha states. Yeah? Yet they don't remain constant, do they? You know, these things are not a constant for us in our lives. You know, they move in and out. The pain and the pleasure arise and fall, and the pain and the pleasure arise and fall. And again, I could say, well, I could finish there, because that's actually really what Vedana is about. But it has, as I've indicated a number of times so far in this talk, has a number of huge ramifications running through, particularly in its relationship to behaviour and character formation. And ultimately, of course, our ethical being in the world. If it's governing our behaviour, it's governing our ethics. Let's have a look at this even on its most primitive level. On its most primitive level, we know that all organisms, including human organisms, will move away from that which is painful as a stimulus, that which is unsatisfactory as a stimulus. We know that human organisms and other organisms will move towards that which is, of course, pleasant. We we are sort of like pleasure-seeking missiles, seeking out the pleasant and trying to avoid the unpleasant. All I can say is, if that is your life strategy, this must be a failed project. (laughs) Because we can seek out the pleasant and then suddenly find that the pleasant has turned now into the unpleasant. Again, Chris indicated this morning with the the taste of that piece of chocolate cake, the first piece, as opposed to the fifth piece. Vast difference, isn't there? In that. That pleasant dwelt with, grasped after, held on to, wanting more, we've moved now into craving, has now suddenly turned to unpleasantness. A feeling of nausea, a feeling of sickness, perhaps. Think of how often our pleasure-seeking is like that. Our pleasure-seeking ends up with the very opposite of what we intended. Somehow feeling slightly nauseous about what we've encountered. We've done too much of it. Whether that be food or whether it be goods or whether it even be that which we're most passionate about sometimes, we have too much of when we grasp after and hold it. So from basic organisms, even an amoeba is going to react to pleasure, pleasure, pain, stimulus. It's going to move to that which it feels is something is going to nourish it and move away from that which isn't. So we have this right from children, right from babies, this movement. Um, And of course, how do babies react? And you probably know this better than I do because I don't have children, but uh, those of you who have children will know how do babies react to the unpleasant? (laughs) Yeah? How do they react to the pleasant? (laughs) Or whatever. (laughs) I'm not very good at baby invitations. (laughs) Yet, in a way, have we really grown up? (laughs) 
That's my question. Have we really grown up? What we've got, of course, what we've acquired over the course of our, of our lives, our education, um, our enveiglement and entanglement into our societal upbringings, whatever your language is, we've become linguistic beings, and we've just got that little bit more sophisticated. You know, haven't we? You know, instead of going, wah, I go, I really hate that. Yeah. Instead of going, hmm, I'm going, yes, that's really quite pleasant. I would like a little bit more of that, please. <laughs> that's terribly English, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, what we're seeing in some senses is a sort of primitive behavior that I think that certainly the Buddha and those who come after him are really identifying as being quite basic to our patterning of our lives. Yeah? Quite basic patterning. Yet, come back to some of the original statements. This is the taste of your experience. And actually, we can't avoid it. Yeah? We can't avoid it. This is not of my making. Yeah? Vedana is not of my making. Yeah? I'm not saying it doesn't have causes and conditions for its existence. Yeah? Some of those causes and conditions might be the way that we're neurologically wired. Yeah? Others might be coming from our societal conditionings. You know? Dwelling in other societies, as I did when I was younger, such as Tibetan society and, and Indian society and Sri Lankan society and things like this, you suddenly realise, of course, that things that you know, are deemed pleasant in the West are considered to be unpleasant and vice versa yeah? within those societies. I wouldn't recommend, by the way, eating a Tibetan sweet. They're inedible. <laughs> yeah. And have no sweetness to them whatsoever, as I discovered. But Tibetans love them. Yeah. Really basic patterning. So we're not saying they're not conditioned, but what we're saying is this is a really fundamental thing. We don't actually have a choice because you know, either we're wired in the way that we are or we're inducted into our societies and our tastes and our reactions are formed within those societies. Yeah? Does this make sense so far? Yeah. I don't say you have to agree, but I think at least at the very basic, does it make sense? Yeah. So these are formed in some way. They become our patterns, but they don't stay forever. Some of them shift, not the hard wiring, obviously, um, but even our conditioning to some of that can change. Yeah. Our relationship to pain can change, particularly with those perhaps who self-harm. Yeah. can be a way of experiencing something else in their lives. Yeah. Our relationship with pleasure can easily move into pain as well, and vice versa. So nothing remains the same, but this is basic. I hope you're really getting this notion, and we're not, in a sense, choosing it. The German philosopher Heidegger has this wonderful phrase he uses in German, which is Gewürfenheit, which is we're thrown into the world. We just find ourselves in the world. It doesn't come with the user's manual either of how to make our way around this world. We have to find our way, and part of that is being, in a sense, inducted into ways of being through our enculturation and through our language. Yeah? So we're finding ourselves simply in life and having to cope. 
and one of the basic things that we're coping with is the bombardment of constant stimuli which are giving us pleasure and pain. Pleasure and unpleasure in life. And those are pretty well dominating our horizons, aren't they? A lot of the time. So much of our life... I mean, even Freud's pleasure principle is more about the avoidance from pain than it is ever about pleasure. Uh, And many, many psychological theories are really based on this idea that actually what we're trying to do is not so much maximise pleasure as minimise pain in our lives. So this is basic, fundamental, we're there and we've got it. And we can't avoid it. So there's no choice in this. Yet... In many ways, and I mentioned this very briefly this morning, it's a pre-cognitive, pre-linguistic judgment. And I have no judgment. It's it's an assessment of experience that's going on continuously. It's a most basic assessment that's going on continuously. And it's arising, again, I literally um, mentioned this this morning, because of one basic factor, which is actually where we started. We're embodied. As embodied beings, one of our most basic aspects of the way that we are here in our world, actually it's part of our world formation, is we're touched and we're touching it. This is often known in in Buddhist technical language as contact. I almost want to drop that word altogether. The word is pasa, which actually means to touch and be touched. In one particular passage, the Buddha says, the person who is not touching is not touched. And I think you can hear that in a metaphorical sense as well. Not just on the literal physicality. How much are we touched by our lives? That poem that I read just now starts off, speak softly, for this is your life. This is what's going on at this most fundamental level, is that we're touching and being touched. We're deeply, deeply interconnected, inveigled in the world. Um, A French philosopher called Maurice Merleau-Ponty refers to this as that we are intertwined with all other experiences. In fact, we're all, he says, using, again, a lovely metaphor, he says we're all of the same flesh. And that flesh is visibility. I can only see, and you see me, because you are seeing me. We're all of the same. And this is only coming about through touching, without literally our senses palpating our world. And notice I'm deliberately using there a metaphor for touch. It's often spoken about in the texts as well as a gentle friction that occurs between that which is touched and that which is touching. A gentle friction that's there that gives us that sense. I think the Buddha is really interesting just as even as a thinker, let alone a practical um, somebody giving us something practical to help us overcome dukkha in our lives in that he's talking about that consciousness and touch are deeply interrelated yeah. that they're arising together 
in this world. We don't have time to go into that, but I'll just leave you with that thought that actually consciousness has a sensory basis to it in early Buddhist psychology. It's not something which is just there. It's actually coming out of our sensory engagement with the world, our embodiment with the world, our embodiment and its contact with the world. Hence the reason why we start off with body. Hence the reason why when we start to speak about, of course, Vedana, when we start to speak about these feeling tones, we start off with feeling tones which are very much there in the body. But of course, in Buddhist psychology, and this was mentioned yesterday, the mind is also a sensory organ. It's also sensory in that it is touching thought. Now, what is mind? This is a strange thing. I mean, let's try and put this to... You know, give a little brief description of what it is in early Buddhist psychologies. Mind is the constant arising and falling away of mental patterning with consciousness. Yeah. Consciousness which is also associated with the body. Yeah. We can really begin to see this when we move in close to our experience. That yeah. actually what we're looking at is a passing passage simply of thoughts, if we're dealing in the mental realm, of thoughts which are being touched and arising together with consciousness. Can you see that? So, actually, what we're dealing with with thought is not something solid, but something is very ephemeral, fleeting. I often joke about it, and many times in this room in giving these sort of talks, is actually thought ought to come with a little label attached to it. And the label reads, just passing through. Because actually that's what most of of what is happening with our thought process is. It's that constant arising of thought. So we've got the constant arising of thought, we've got the constant arising of pleasure and pain in our lives. The one thing that characterises this, of course, is its instability. That they're arising and passing away. Therein lies the good news. Therein lies, in some senses, the the basis for our liberating ourselves from the ideas of fixity, of something being bound and immutable in our experience. It arises and it passes away. And particularly in this relationship of thought, then it arises and passes away. In your practice today, yesterday and the day before, you will have seen this, won't you? Again and again and again. Those thoughts will be arising and passing away. Each of those thoughts, when we come into contact with them, again will be toned, will have a tonality to them. That tonality is, of course... Slightly different words in the mental realm, but it basically comes out as the same. It's pleasant and unpleasant. Pleasant and unpleasant. And of course, a lot of that thought processes go unheeded because they don't have those tones. And that's what we're indifferent to. We don't really care. Think about our passage through the world in terms of our physical being. We encounter something that we literally bump into that hurts us. Pain. We encounter something which we see, something visual that's very pleasurable, want more. 
And then there's that, all that vast area of our experience, which I don't really want to call the neutral, but, but just hasn't registered. Because actually it hasn't fallen into these other two categories. Yeah. So this is, again, I hope you're beginning to see how important Vedana is, because it's, it's dominating the way our approach mechanisms and our movement away mechanisms from things. Yeah. The way that we move towards something, the way that we move away from something. So actually, if you think about that in terms of life, our lives can be spent just moving forward, moving back, moving forward, moving back. I've kind of indicated this already in what I've said so far. This is what we're starting to get a clue into when we start to investigate Vedic. Yeah. investigate it through seeing it possibly sometimes arising in contact yeah. immediately yeah. we get this very much with physical sensations don't we sometimes yeah. if I put my hand on something really hot I don't think to myself is that really hot <laughs> yeah. the body will move yeah. mentally we often do that as well we move away very quickly from that which we deem to be, you know, or precognitively judge as being unpleasant. Yeah? So that judgment's going on all the time because you can't help but contact. Yeah? So through contact is arising Vedana. Yeah? Contact, Vedana. Contact, Vedana. This is going on all the time. Yeah. I hope you've got this message by now. You know, I've reiterated it and come at it in a number of different angles, but it's basically saying the same thing. So, I also hope you're following me into why this is becoming important because of this movement towards that movement away from you know, constantly in our lives. In some of the maps... And basically what the Buddha, and I think it was Christina said this, what the Buddha really is doing, and later people involved in the early Buddhist tradition, are they are map makers in the sense of they're actually beginning to map human functioning. Yeah. Not in a sort of abstract way that we perhaps would do in contemporary cognitive psychology, but much more in a practical way of what actually alleviate, what, what is it necessary to understand to alleviate the problem that's actually all of this is meant to deal with, the whole of the mindfulness practices and that is about the alleviation of dukkha in, in life. Yeah. The waking up um, to the way things are is, is actually the way the text put it, waking up to the way things are. Not the way I like them to be, but the way they actually are. Yeah? It's, a, it's a big project. Yeah? Even in our secular-based mindfulness, you're waking up often to a problem and how that problem is brought about and how can it be alleviated. So what they were doing was they were drawing up maps of human functioning. Yeah? And some of these are really, really quite profound maps. And I think Christina's going to touch on one tomorrow night as well. But the one I want to, I suppose, focus on this evening is the one that's usually known, it's a nice long Pali word, Patichasamupada, which actually means dependent arising. Yeah. And Vedanta takes its place in this map of dependent arising. 
Things do not just occur in the Buddhist world, they depend on other things. It's not, and I, I do use that language deliberately in the sense that something depends on something else or its existence. It doesn't necessarily mean it's caused by, although causal connectedness might be there, it means it's dependent, it rests upon something else. So the fact that we have Vedana rests upon the fact that we come into contact with things continuously. that follow? The description that's often given is, or the metaphor that's usually used, is of two corn stooks or hay stooks supporting each other, holding each other up. Pull one away, the other one falls down. So, this moves into a sort of generalised formula which is often used. This happens, that happens. This ceases to happen, that ceases to happen. And in a way, it's describing what happens when you start to pull at you like the string of what we begin to discern in experience as this connectedness between contact, the arising of feeling, and then what follows. Because something is going to follow from this. And what is going to follow from it in this particular map of human functioning is craving. This is what's going to follow from it. Now, this is an oddity because I've spoken about the unpleasant. So this is not just about the craving to have, the wanting, the desiring and everything else, but it's also almost a negative wanting and desiring because I don't want certain things in my life. I do not desire to have certain pains and difficulties in our lives. So there's actually a craving that's deeply embedded into that that doesn't want. So it's odd in English, but actually works perfectly well in Indic languages, is that, that I can crave, and the word that's used... In a, I'll give you in a second, to not want certain things. But I can also crave to want certain things. Yeah? And again, we can see this in our experience. This is not, again, theoretical. This is something that's built directly on empirical observation yeah, in, in Buddhist meditational practice, that we can see this, how suddenly we find ourselves moving from contact with something to actually desiring, wanting. Yeah. Actually, the Western world is really good at this. It's called advertisements. Yeah. As you're, you, know, you come in contact with the advertisement, yeah, it gives you a pleasurable, and or sometimes not such a pleasurable feeling, but often it's just, you know, trying to create a pleasurable feeling so that you want the goods that are being sold to you. It's a manipulation of that desiring faculty except it's even stronger than desiring because it's actually and I think we mark this in English between desire and craving now the craving that's being spoken about is arising directly in a sense on the back of the Vedanas that we have that craving that we're having is unquenchable the word literally the word Tanha or Trishna in Sanskrit literally means a thirst, but the implication is a thirst that can never be quenched by anything. 
So actually, this idea that, you know, let's just take it in the realm of, of the accumulation of things. By accumulating everything that I want in life and trying to avoid everything that I don't want, I will suddenly be then, therefore, propelled into happiness is actually a mythology. Yeah. And just think how <laughs> impossible that is. Yeah. To gain everything you want in this life and to avoid everything you don't want. Yeah. It's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. Because actually there's certain things which are unavoidable. Yeah, just take those for a second. There's certain things that are unavoidable. Yeah. For example, ageing. Is unavoidable. Sickness is unavoidable and generally goes with ageing, I've noticed. <laughs> yeah. And of course, then there is death at the end of it. These are unavoidable. Yeah. So you're not going to get to avoid everything you don't want because I'm sure none of us want to say that we really want death in that way. Yeah. Uh, as Woody, Woody Allen, love, I love the, this quote from Woody Allen, he puts it, he says, you know, I don't want to live on in the memories of others, I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> you know, I think that's probably true for most of us, well, not always, but, you know, that this is something we don't want in our lives. <laughs> so, this is a craving that is being driven by often unexamined Vedana, lying at the root of it. Because if we don't see the unpleasantness and the pleasantness of things, then we suddenly find ourselves propelled into behaviour, don't we? Again, it's an example I've used many, many times. I don't find myself particularly desiring something. I find myself in the mode of eating something. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like you've missed the connectedness you know, from the arise from the stimulus to the behaviour that's being exhibited. Yeah. You find yourself in behaviour. And actually that's often, as I suggested this morning, often the way that we track Vedana. We see it as consequences. Yeah. So it's almost like we've, well, we've seen the tracks of Vedana that's led up to where we are now. Yeah. And actually sometimes that's about as good as it gets. On other occasions we can see the Vedana at the most basic level at the, at the moment of contact. Yeah. We can see it particularly with you know, physicality. I mean, when we move something away in that automatic way. Yeah. But that's not really the problem. The problem is, is the automatic nature, of course, yeah. the automatic pilot nature, if we're using the sort of phrases in MBSR and MBCT, of much of our responses or reactions better to Vedana. Yeah. We find ourselves in the mode of behaviours without knowing how on earth we got there. Yeah. Does that strike a note at all? You just wonder, why on earth am I doing this? Now, how did I get here? And why am I doing it again? <laughs> yeah, I think the, uh, the only thing that we learn, as uh, Lawrence Darrell once said about history, is we don't learn anything from history. 
We just find ourselves doing things again and again and again. So somehow you've got to break that. And the whole, in a sense, the whole enterprise behind looking and slowing down and beginning to discern those slippery characters called Vedanas is to start to break that chain of that movement into this thirsting. This thirsting. In the chain that, that um, Christine is going to more talk, talk about more tomorrow, we find this particularly associated with... It, it uses it slightly different because it's slightly differently because it's saying out of Vedana is going to arise perception. Yeah. Really, which is, in Buddhist terms, the word is, again, it's a peculiar term in, in, in Buddhist languages. The term sanya really indicates a sense of discrimination and language and memory and all sorts of things that are come in at some point and actually are a crystallization and constellation of self you know, at that moment. So self is often born out of Vedas. You see in the, in the original chain, you see even a change in language from something that's happening impersonally, which is there is sense organs and consciousness and objects which give rise to contact, which give rise to Vedana, and suddenly you go out of this impersonal language and that which one feels, one perceives. It's moved into personal language. There's suddenly an I interjected into this whole process that is just happening. This really does then all become all about me yeah, at that moment. This is my perception at this moment. This is not an impersonal happening. The I becomes inserted in experience as almost an object into our experience. So in beginning to see this functioning, either in this chain, which again I keep alluding to, that Christina's going to talk more about, or in the one that I've been speaking about, where it's giving rise to craving and then ultimately to clinging, we find actually the I, that sense of self being born in that moment, usually out of a sense of insufficiency, usually out of a sense of lack that that I is being born out of. So it's born in the perceptual process. It's also born out of that sense of lack, which craving is attempting to fill. That sense of lack. Yeah. Does that kind of make sense at all? There's often a sense of vacuity within us that we attempt to fill. And much of our behaviour is an attempt to fill, to make ourselves a little bit more solid a little less evanescent or a little less floaty yeah? Yeah. to make ourselves a little bit more solid in this world. And we do that primarily by trying in some way or other through the objects of craving, and it doesn't have to be obviously material object, but through the objects of craving to make ourselves more substantial. Something that comes very close to this in Western thought as, a, as an observation is the observation that, that Jean-Paul Sartre made in his Being and Nothingness, 
which is actually what we're attempting to do often is evade freedom. Because freedom comes with responsibility. Because that responsibility, if we're free, is the responsibility in the choices that we make in our lives. Anxiety and anguish are often born out of that sense of responsibility in the face of our own freedom. It's quite an acute observation there. And so in that attempt to do it, we try to make ourselves much more solid. We try to turn ourselves into something much more thing-like. That becomes the I. That becomes the self in this. It's further constellated by the grasping that arises out of this. Entrapment. I mean, this is how I often translate grasping these days, or clinging, is actually the the moment of entrapment. Whether that's entrapped by ideologies, or that's entrapped by the goods and the having that we're involved in. But we're often trapped and solidified at that moment of grasping after something, of holding on to it. Lots of metaphors are used in early texts about letting go in some way or creating the conditions for something to drop away in your experience. Coming back to the practice, of course, what we're doing within this observation, this beginning to inquire into, it's, it's interesting in, in the, in the Satipatthana Sutta, this sutta that we keep on referring to in different ways, this particular section is called Vedana Anupasana in Pali. Vedana Anupasana. And literally the word pasana means to see. Anu means to go beyond ordinary seeing. So it's to see very clearly beyond the ordinary pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant arising in our lives and actually to see the mechanism, to see what's going on. It's usually translated as the contemplation of Vedana, which I don't think really does justice to it. It's a seeing that really begins to see the process of what is happening and the consequences of that process. We live, let's put it in really stark terms, we live the consequences of unexamined Vedanas when they're operative on you. They form our characters, what we call, well, yes, I mean, personality is often the condensation of a lot of those Vedanas coming together in formations, in habit patterns. For the word formations, which Christina used this morning, we could simply insert the phrase habit patterns. That we are often a condensation and a crystallisation of whatever age you are, the habit patterns we've developed in our lives. As a reactiveness to the pleasant and the unpleasant that's discovered in experience. I'm painting a terribly bleak picture, aren't I? (laughs) And the only reason I'm painting the bleak picture is because it doesn't have to be this way. That's the whole point of this. Understanding the mechanism, understanding the process 
is already starting to disentangle ourselves from it. Do you see that? That the moment we begin to investigate the process of entanglement, we're disentangling ourselves. We're starting to get ourselves out of the knot, get ourselves out of the mess. But in order to do that, we have to slow down. That's what retreat is about. It's about this slowing down nature. Let me give you another little quote. If I can find it. Yeah, it's here. Some of you may have heard me read this before, those who have been on retreat before. But I think it really sums up part of the problems in our normal activities, particularly in ordinary life, in the Western world as we find it today, which is this. Speed, the demon of speed, is often associated with forgetting with avoidance, and slowness with memory and confronting. We move slowly when we want to listen to ourselves. We move slowly when we want to listen to others and the world around us. We move slowly when we want to accept ourselves. What a deep thing that is, to learn to accept ourselves with all of our foibles at this moment. That's the only place we can start from. The rush of contemporary life overwhelms us and our ability to observe, to hear, to step back and to wonder. Society, contemporary society, wants to blow out the tiny trembling flame of memory. That doesn't come from Buddhist source, that comes from a, a Western novelist. Uh, somebody, some of you may know his work, somebody called Milan Kundera, um, wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being, amongst many other works as well. But I think it's a very acute observation, and particularly if we take it in relationship to what we're doing here, because what we're doing is slowing down. Yeah? Notice when it says, you know, speed is associated with forgetting. The faster we move in our lives, the faster we move, and I'm not talking about literally physically slowing down. I think Christina mentioned this the other day in introducing walking. It does help to slow the speed, but in the end it's not really about moving ultra slowly through the world. It's more like an inner slowness. There's, There's almost something here that we can if you like, still continue to function really effectively, but not with the frenetic agitation that we often bring, that we're compelled into. Yeah? So, speed doesn't mean being mentally speedy. Speeding up, I think as Chris put it. Yeah? Losing ourselves, forgetting ourselves, slowing down coming down into that sense of groundedness that's been spoken about so far. Coming down into that and remembering. One of the things we haven't touched on so far, many of you will have heard it before, that the word sati, mindfulness, means basically it's derived out of a Sanskrit Pali term which means to remember, to recollect. We don't give ourselves time for that. So how on earth are we going to speak catch these extremely fast aspects of experience unless we begin to slow down. And the slowing down is not so that we can become hypercritical when we see ourselves perhaps still falling into behaviours that we see, but to actually know that this can change. 
we slow down sufficiently enough to create, if you like, a point of choice, a space, a gap where we can choose, where we're not determined. Because the picture I've been trying to paint, the bleak picture I've been trying to paint for you to make a point, is that when Vedanas are just working in this very automatic fashion and we find ourselves either in this process of the perceptual I or we find ourselves in that mode of craving and grasping, entrapment, there is no choice in that. There is no choice to be. You find yourself caught in behaviours automatically. And we repeat them. There is a compulsion to repeat here that's being worked out in this when we don't slow down and begin to observe what's going on. Now there's a lot more technicalities to this, but I've tried to give you the most sort of basic view of what Vedana is and why it is so important in our experience and actually how it goes through all of the other dimensions of our experience. Because, again, something Chris mentioned last night, when we look at the hindrances, they are the products often of unexamined Vedana. So it's really worth pausing sometimes, not to get into a big, big thinking process about it. I tried to say that this morning. When you're thinking about whether this is pleasant or unpleasant, that's not Vedana, that's just thinking. That's fine, but it's not Vedana. But the Vedana is, what is that immediacy of that experience of that moment? What is the immediacy? Just like when you put salt on your tongue or something really sweet on your tongue. You don't go, hmm, does that taste sweet or does it taste salty? You just either go, yuck, or that's really nice. (laughs) It happens immediately, doesn't it? It's like that in your experience. That's Vedana. That's what we're speaking about. And that's why that slowing down process becomes so important. And why, in a sense, the daily practice becomes important and the and the retreat becomes important because we slow down sufficiently to be able to see this process. And in seeing that process, we begin to disentangle ourselves from that. And give yourself the opportunity to make choices in your life. Where at the moment, often we don't have those choices. I'm not going to claim this is going to happen overnight. It's a process of getting closer, beginning to move closer into your experience, beginning to really savour the tastes of experience so that you see them. Sometimes, as I've already indicated, you're not going to see those directly. You're going to see them still as consequences of your behaviour. But then you can affect the behaviour. You can sometimes just get enough clarity about what's going on to not move into those behaviours any further. So the big claim that I was making, and I'll only, as we move actually to the end of this, the big claim that I was making, this has an enormous effect on your character formation. So the unexamined life, in that platonic sense, but here, obviously, in the meditative way, will lead you into simply compulsions to repeat. To avoid the unpleasant to maximise the pleasant in your life. Yeah. A self-defeating project because you're never going to achieve it in many ways. Yeah. 
When we slow down that process, we give ourselves the chance of moving into choices which become responses and meaningful responses to life, rather than sometimes reactive nihilistic ways of dealing with what life throws up for us. A lifetime where we don't examine his character. It forms and hardens often as we get older because they become more concretized. They won't remain exactly the same because nothing remains exactly the same. Everything is changing. If one takes this, I haven't got time to argue this, but if one took that viewpoint that everything is changing, well, certainly not even these things are going to change, but there's going to be a repetition of things which are very similar, unfolding within your life. The question you really have to ask yourself is, do you want that? Or do you think of a better way to live? Is there a a better, more meaningful way where we make meaningful choices and give our lives meaning and we're not tied to that deterministic framework that seems to be there when we simply move from contact, feeling, craving, grasping, an act I didn't mention, into another form of becoming, which is usually repetition of something very similar. The choice is yours. Yet, we can only do it by moving closely into our experience, beginning to see that much more clearly by that process of slowing down, by beginning to slow down and see clearly for yourselves. Okay, I'll finish there. (laughs) I hope I haven't depressed you too much. (laughs) Oh, shucks, I haven't succeeded then. Okay, let's let's have a, a minute of silence just to let this settle. And thank you for your attention. Yeah.